I have a favorite saying. Actually, I have a lot of sayings that are attributed to me from time to time. But one of my favorite sayings that I probably quote at least once a week is, opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. Right? Do you have any opinions this morning? Absolutely. How many times this week were you asked for your opinion? Never? I cannot begin to count the number of times this week I was asked my opinion about something. When I go bike riding with my buddies, they want to know, where do you want to ride? They want to know my opinion. And I always tell them, I've been giving you the same answer every time we ride for several years. I don't care where we go, I just want to ride. That's my opinion. I was asked multiple times this week, what would I like for dinner? Huh? Were you asked that question this Anyone else asked that question this week? So, just you and me, our wives are the only ones that care about what we want to eat? Oh, <laughs> so, so they asked your opinion, but she didn't really care. Oh, there's a whole sermon wrapped up in that, my friend. So, I was asked my opinion about stuff, um, pretty, some pretty mundane stuff. Um, I met with a family to plan a funeral for their father who'd passed away. Um, they wanted to know tons of my opinions about a memorial service because they'd never planned one. And so they had lots of questions about this. And that. I was asked my, my opinion. Um, anybody go on Facebook? Does Facebook ever ask for your opinion? You ever get social media? I'm constantly asking for your opinions. I was asked this week what my opinion was about who was going to win the Tour de France. Who cares what my opinion? It's not going to influence the Tour de France, right? But my, my money's on Tade Pagacha, if you want to know. Uh, that's, that's my opinion. But opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. And m- many of our opinions don't matter a whole lot. They're pretty mundane. What do you want for dinner? Where do you want to ride your bike? Those kinds of things. But there's other opinions that probably carry a little more weight. Like if, if uh, we were getting ready to go out and play golf and there's a thunderstorm. You know, would you care about my opinion about whether we should go play golf out in the middle of a thunderstorm? Go anyway. Eddie, you're ready to go golfing at the drop of a hat. I know, it doesn't matter, thunderstorm. So, what's my opinion if if you want to go surfing and there's been a recent recent shark sighting down at Huntington Beach? You know, that, that opinion is a little more important, right? Or you want to know my opinion about whether we should include these mushrooms you found while hiking up in Angela's Crest yesterday, whether we should include those in our lunch today. You know, some decisions carry a little more weight, carry a little more value. Uh, Many opinions are even life and death issues. A.W. Tozer, among the many things that he said, said this. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. You have to think about that a little bit. And I would add a corollary to that. What you think about when you think about Jesus matters. It's important. I would even go so far as to say it's kind of one of those life and death issues. So there's some opinions that don't matter. You know, I want pizza for dinner. doesn't matter. And as Bet says, it doesn't matter anyway because Jennifer's not going to do what he wants. 
But there's other opinions that are important. And so this morning, I want you to come with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going to jump in at verse 20. And what we're going to look at this morning is what I want to call the ultimate opinion poll. You know, there's, there's famous opinion polls that take place. The Gallup poll, the Pew Report poll, and so on. But we're going to look at opinions this morning that all kind of swirl around Jesus and who He is. And so we're going to look first at the opinions of the people, the others around Jesus. We're going to focus in for a few minutes on Jesus' opinion about all these others. And then we're going to kind of circle back to us, our opinions, and try to put that together in a way that makes sense. Opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. Some opinions matter a lot more than others. And what you think about Jesus matters a lot, right? Right? Okay, that was a little better. So we're in Mark chapter 3. We're just buzzing through Mark's gospel. And, yeah, right. So I want to begin reading at verse 20. And Jesus came home. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they were out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold! Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Lots of opinions expressed in this passage. Lots of opinions that wrap around Jesus who he is, and what he's done. So, Mark emphasizes over and over again this crowd. He uses that word crowd, multitude, over and over again. So, there's hundreds, there's thousands who are following Jesus, tracking with Jesus. And the attitude of the multitude, how would you summarize the attitude, the opinion of the multitude that's following Jesus? Can you put a word to where they are as they've tracked with Jesus? So, for example, as you think about that question, what word you would use to describe it, back up in your mind, 
Mark's Gospel, we're in the third chapter. What have we experienced Jesus doing in the last two and now half chapters? Twice, he's been in the synagogue teaching. In the first event, back in chapter 1, he went into the synagogue and he, cast the, he taught first and he cast out a demon. And if you remember in that passage, twice it describes the response of the multitude as they listened and watched Jesus. And their opinion of Jesus is captured in a word that's used twice in that in that section, they were amazed. They were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching. Why? Taught with authority. Didn't quote 15 rabbis to support what he said. He quoted himself. He quoted the Old Testament. He spoke with authority and they were amazed because it was so different. He cast out a demon and they were amazed. And these people, most of them, have been tracking Jesus since the very beginning because many of them were first following, watching, and listening to whom? John the Baptist. And so they observed Jesus responding to John's message when John said, uh, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Come be baptized for the remission of sins, repentance of sins. Jesus came identifying with these who are turning to God They saw him, not only saw him being baptized, but what else did many of these people witness? Holy Spirit descended in form, white, shiny, kind of like a dove. And they heard a voice from where? Heaven. And that voice said, what? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So some of these people have been tracking, watching, listening. Uh, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, is tempted, he comes back. He calls his first four disciples, Andrew and Peter and James and John, and they go into the synagogue that we just talked about where Jesus taught and cast out demons. They left the synagogue and went where? Do you remember? Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. Jesus healed her. Mom jumped up and did what? Cooked dinner. Then I wonder if she asked Jesus what he wanted for dinner. I don't know. But the, the response of people, they gathered around the house where Jesus is now eating with Peter and his family, apparently. And they've crowded around. There's hundreds, thousands who've come to Jesus for healing. Jesus stays up late that night, apparently, doing that. He gets up early and he goes off by himself to do what? Pray, spend time with his father. The disciples wake up and where's Jesus? They go hunting for him and they're trying to drag Jesus where? back to the crowds. Jesus says, no, I, I need to preach in these other cities. That's why I came. And so he goes off and he's, he's preaching. A leper meets him. And the leper says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What did Jesus say? I'm willing. Those are great words, aren't they? So Jesus heals the leper and he tells the leper, go out and tell everybody, right? No, exactly the opposite. Don't tell anybody. And the healed leper did what? (laughs) Went out and told everybody. And so the crowds are multiplying. And they're following Jesus. Four guys bring their friend to Jesus. Paralyzed friend. 
And they're carrying him on a, a pallet, like a stretcher. These four guys are carrying their buddy. They want to take him to Jesus to get healed. And they get to the house, and guess what? There's hundreds, thousands crowding in and around the house. They can't get there. So what they do? They climbed up on the roof, dug a hole through a foot and a half to two feet of, of roof material that involved branches and thatch work and clay that had hardened. Through all of that, they dropped their friend to Jesus. And what did Jesus say to that guy when he dropped down through the roof? Your sins are forgiven. Oh, the scribes and Pharisees are watching. Their radar comes up. And their response is what? Hey, who can, who can forgive sin but God alone? Good theology, right? And Jesus says, what's, what's harder, to say your sins are forgiven or to, to heal this guy? And then he heals the paralytic and tells him to take his pallet and walk out. And so that guy picks up his pallet and he walks through this crowd of people. And I see the crowd dividing like the Red Sea and he's walking out with his, with his pallet. People are watching, they're observing, they're listening to Jesus teach, they're watching him heal. He, find, he goes to a tax collector, hated, despised tax collector. What was his name? Matthew, or originally Levi. And he tells Matthew, follow me. And what's Matthew do? Jumps up, leaves his tax booth and follows Jesus. And in the next section of Scripture, what is Levi and Matthew doing? He's got a dinner party. He's invited all of his friends to come. And of course, because he's a despised, hated, uh, traitor to the Jewish world, who are his friends? All the rest of the outcasts. The rest of the tax collectors. The sinners. The prostitutes and other known people who don't keep God's law, right? <laughs> Pharisees had trouble with that. Jesus then goes into the synagogue again. Teaches again, there's a guy there with a withered hand. Scribes and Pharisees, of course, are on hand to watch again, right? Jesus then, he calls the guy forward, stretch out your hand. Heal. So this crowd of people that we see here in Mark chapter 3, many of them, not all of them, have been there from the very beginning, but some of them have, many of them have. They've been listening to Jesus teach. He has authority. They've been watching Jesus heal leprosy, paralytic, casting out demons. And so the opinion of the multitude is what? Wow. They're impressed. On a scale of 1 to 10, do they like Jesus? Yeah, what's not to like? And so, they're amazed at Jesus. They like Jesus. They love the fact that, you know, He's healing people. I expect that many of those people in the crowd are the people that Jesus healed, right? And so, the opinion of the multitude is a very positive, strong opinion about Jesus, right? Same thing's true in the world in which you and I live. A lot of people like Jesus. A lot of people think well of Jesus. Is that enough? So we have the opinion of the multitude. We have the further opinion of many in that group, not all, but many, because 
they're, they're a little confused. They're questioning. They're curious. Who is this guy? And as we progress through Mark's gospel, we're going to see the, the disciples are with Jesus, and they ask the question frequently, who is this guy? What kind of guy is this? <laughs> That's a good question to ask. That's a great question to ask. We have people in our world today that are a little confused asking questions. It's good to ask questions. Questions aren't bad. So we have the multitude. We have many. And and then as we read in Mark's Gospel, we have the opinion um, early on. uh, It talks about, where did that verse go? It says um, in verse 21, when his own people heard of this, And I believe his own people is a reference to the family that comes in later in the in the chapter. This is his his family, his mother, his brothers, maybe his sisters were a part of that. You all know Jesus had brothers and sisters, right? There there's a whole whole bunch of theology behind that. But Jesus had brothers and sisters. And so his own people come, which I believe is the family that now approaches him at the latter part of this section we read. The opinion of those closest to Jesus, his mother and his brothers, those who are his family, their opinion is what? He's crazy. He's out of his ever-loving mind. (laughs) Anyone ever told you you were crazy because of what you believe? The Apostle Paul, in the latter chapters of the book of Acts, he's standing trial, and some of you remember this well, and he's standing trial before a guy by the name Felix, and and Paul is telling Felix his story. You know, he tells him about the Damascus Road experience and how God has called him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And Felix looked at the Apostle Paul and said what? Much learning has made you mad. (laughs) Dwight Moody was often told that he was crazy as he traveled and proclaimed the gospel. So if people tell you you're crazy because of what you believe, um, you're in good company, right? So we have the multitude who are amazed and impressed. We have some who are a little confused, asking questions, seeking to understand. We have his family who think he's crazy. Oh, there's another group that's gathered here in this chapter that have an opinion about Jesus. Who else is there? scribes and the Pharisees. And their opinion about Jesus, this man who has healed a leper, cast out demons, healed a paralytic, healed a guy with a withered hand, um, their opinion about this guy is what? What's your your text say? He is demon-possessed. He's not just crazy. He is operating and functioning under the power of Satan. (laughs) So there's all these opinions about Jesus. And I think how similar it is to the world in which you and I live today. Everybody has an opinion. Opinions are like noses, right? And there are people today who think uh, Jesus was a little bit off his rocker. There are people today who 
There's even people today who don't believe Jesus even lived. Which boggles my mind. Lots of opinions. More important than the opinions of all of these that we've just mentioned is the opinions of Jesus. And so, as this passage unfolds, Jesus expresses opinions um, in this chapter. And I find it kind of fascinating that um, as he addresses the opinions of the scribes and Pharisees, he tells these parables about nation divided, house divided, you know, the strong man overpowering. He, ha- he has all these stories, these parables, to kind of paint a picture. And what he's telling the scribes and the Pharisees is what? Your logic doesn't work. Your logic is illogical. You know, if I'm casting out demons who are under the control of Satan, and I'm doing that in the power of Satan, then what? I'm working against myself. So he's saying your logic doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It's a, it's a kingdom divided against itself. It's a house divided. It doesn't work. And if a strong man's going to come in, he has to overpower the homeowner, right? And so the strong man is stronger. And so Jesus is expressing his opinion about all this. And then he says, all sins will be forgiven except one. This one sin is an eternal sin with eternal consequences. It will be forgiven when? Never. That sounds pretty serious. That sounds pretty critical. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The word blaspheme, by the way, is a simple Greek word that's transliterated letter for letter into English. And it's two words put together. The word feme, which is to speak, and the word blaspho, which is bad or evil. To speak bad or to speak evil. That's the basic understanding of that word. But in this context, what Jesus is pointing to is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is seeing Jesus performing all these miracles that they've observed, seeing Him do that, watching Him do that, and rather than coming to the understanding that Jesus is functioning under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit... This is happening by the power of Satan. That is the unpardonable sin. I find it kind of fascinating. If if you were to go online and you were to just Google blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you're going to find some fascinating stuff out there. Really amazing stuff. There's a group. um, Oh... They, they call themselves uh, reason, rational thought. It's a group of atheists who have established a website where they have what they call the Blasphemy Challenge. And they invite people to record videos 
of them blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's what I said. Wow! (laughs) And so, if you were to go there, you'll find videos of people who are saying um, some really rude, crude, and lewd things about the Holy Spirit. You will find people denouncing that the Holy Spirit exists. I denounce the Holy Spirit. I denounce that He exists, just like the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus. You'll you'll find stuff like this. They have a total misunderstanding of what it means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. But it is kind of fascinating that there, there are people who understand the truth we just read. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin that will never be forgiven. And there's people who gladly, openly, happily, joyfully record themselves for the world to watch saying bad things about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' opinion matters a lot. These religious leaders of his day, they're they're the experts, right? The scribes were called doctors of the law. They were the experts in the scriptures. They were the ones who knew and taught the scriptures. They were the experts. And their opinion about Jesus, as they watched him teach and heal, their opinion about Jesus is, he's demon-possessed. He's operating under Satan's power. And Jesus says, when, when, you, when you say that, you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. A lot of people are concerned that they have, had, they have done the unpardonable sin. And really, as I think about it, the unpardonable sin ultimately, because there's only one sin that will never be forgiven, and that's failure to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, right? And that's what the consequence is when you have looked at the miracles of Jesus, watched him perform them, and it said he's doing that by the power of Satan, not by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' opinions continue in this chapter down to the last couple of verses. His mother and brothers are now outside the house, outside where Jesus is, And their agenda is to do what? Drag Jesus out of there and take him home. Why? Because he is crazy. He's out of his mind. And isn't it fascinating as you read this passage that Jesus looks around at the people around him in verse 33. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Who is it that really has relationship with me? Who is it that is really in relationship with me? Would be mother and brothers. Who is it? Jesus answers that question. What's he say? Whoever does the will of my father. That's my mother, my brothers, my sister. Now there's an opinion you better pay attention to, right? Right? There's an opinion you better pay attention to. Who is it that has 
Meaningful, significant relationship with Jesus, like mother and brothers, like family. Who is it? Those who do the will of the Father. There's a logical question that follows that statement. There's a logical question that ought to occur to you following that statement. Whoever does the will of my Father. The logical question that follows that is what? What is the will of the Father? You can't do the will of the Father until you know what it is, right? What is the will of the Father? That you would believe in His Son. That's the will of the Father. Put your faith and your trust in the Son. So Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, you know, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's eternal sin, no forgiveness. Who is it, on the other hand, who has relationship with me that really matters? Who is it that really is my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of the Father put their faith and their trust. Everybody has opinions. Opinions are like noses, right? Everybody has one. Whose opinions matter most? Jesus' opinion matters a lot. And so as I look at this passage and think about this passage, and I think about the opinions of of the multitude, the opinions of his family, the opinions of the scribes and Pharisees, I see Jesus responding to these opinions. And then I step back from all this and I say, so what's our opinion? What's your opinion? What's my opinion about Jesus? That matters a lot in the world in which you and I live. And I would suggest to you this morning that sadly, many, many who call themselves Christians are as confused as these folks we just read about. As confused. Maybe more confused. Because today we have the scriptures in our hands. So why is it that a well-known opinion poll company can poll those who self-identify as evangelical Christians? Why is it that in your and my contemporary world, only a third of those who are polled believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. How is that possible? People are confused. Why is it Why is it that a guy can produce a book called Ecumenical Jihad? This was almost 25 years ago. But this gentleman produced a book with the title Evangelical Jihad, and he was responding to the cultural battles that were going on back in the late 90s and have continued over the last 20 plus years. And he was addressing the fact that we're losing this cultural battle. Morals are changing. 
What we used to say was good, our culture says is bad. What our, we used to believe is right, our culture says is wrong. We need to do something about this. And so he wrote this book, Ecumenical Jihad. And his basic thesis of the book was this. All of us who are monotheists, what does that word mean? One God. We believe there's one God. All of us who are monotheists need to get together on the same page because we all believe the same thing. Oh? So, who in the world that you and I occupy would fall into that category of monotheists? Islam? Judaism? And then you've got groups that consider themselves Christian that are monotheist. Groups like Dave? <laughs> Don't mess with me. I agree with you. But we have Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, there's a whole slew of groups that believe in one God. Are we all on the same page, believe in the same thing, go in the same direction? Not close. He goes on further to say, when there's a war, there needs to be a general, someone in charge. And so all of us monotheists who all believe the same thing and we're all going to heaven together, we're all in the same boat, we need a general, we all need to line up behind one guy. And that one guy should be... Well, be wonderful to be Jesus. That wasn't where he was going. He says we need to all get in line behind the Pope. He's going to be the general. And what's going to empower us going forward is the power of our belief and faith and trust in Mary. It's like, what? And so when this book came out, it was heavily advertised and supported by a magazine, the title of which was and continues to be Christianity Today. And on the back of the dust cover, to my amazement, and I'll say horror, on the back of the dust cover are people endorsing this book. Names like J.I. Packer. Names like Charles Colson. And I'm going, are we that confused about who Jesus is? Are we that confused? And so that's why I say this morning, we're 2,000 years removed from the time of Jesus, but a lot of people who call themselves Christians are still pretty confused about what the truth is. Many today are... Maybe part of that confused group, and but they're kind of similar to this group I've identified as being kind of curious. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Trying to understand him. Um, that's a good thing. I wish I could meet somebody every day who was asking that question, don't you? Wouldn't you love to encounter one person every day who was asking that question? And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if they all had some kind of a mark on their cheek or something so you could pick them out of the crowd and pick them out and go talk to them? But they don't have that mark. And that's why we need to be talking to 
people regardless, right? Because there are people in your world and in my world, in your neighborhood and my neighborhood, who are asking questions. And they're never going to walk in those doors back there. Never going to walk in those doors back there. At least not until they come to faith because of our witness. People are confused. People are curious. One of my heroes, if I can use that word in this curiosity thing, George Harrison, one of the members of the Beatles, yay for 60s rock music, um, George Harrison was an interesting guy. I don't know if you've read much about him, read about his life. Obviously, we know he was a musician, part of the Beatles back in the 60s. But George Harrison was on a mission, a spiritual journey. And he was traveling the world looking for answers to his questions. Spent a lot of time in Asia, the Asian religions, gurus, and so on. And at one point in time, George Harrison said something that has really resonated uh, with me. And he said this, Everything else in life can wait except the search for God. That cannot wait. People are confused. People are curious. But they need to know the truth. They need to know the truth. And I look at the world in which you and I live, and I look at churches in America, our church included, and I wonder... Is it possible that in the typical evangelical church in America that there's people that are still confused about who Jesus is, what he did, and why he did it? Are there people that are still confused? And so, things occur to me. One is... There's a high, high value in your spiritual journey, in my spiritual journey. We've not arrived yet, right? Someone say right. Just kind of agree with me for a minute. Just pretend you agree. So we're all in process. None of us has arrived. Paul said that, right? Paul said that, Philippians chapter 3, you know, pressing on to the mark, prize of the high calling. So we're in process. We're moving forward. Hopefully we're growing, we're maturing in our faith, right? There's a high value on this journey. There's a high value to taking self-inventory. There's a high value to self-examination. There's a high value to making sure that you have a good handle on the truth. High value. Paul even says this in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Wow. Anybody ever flown on an airplane? So the plane is sitting at the gate and you're getting anxious to get going and the steward or the stewardess gets on the microphone with their little pitch and you don't pay attention to it anymore because you've heard it dozens of times. Um, if Habib was here, he probably has it memorized because he flies, what, three or four times a week. But in that little speech that they give, 
they talk about the fact that in the event of the loss of cabin pressure, what's going to happen? Mask is going to drop down, and you need to yank on that little thing to activate the oxygen flow. And the next thing that the steward or the stewardess says is what? Put on your own mask first before helping your child. And the really funny ones add, if you have more than one child, start with your favorite. Um, But the whole point is, when that mask drops down, if you don't take care of yourself first, you know, you're not going to be in good enough shape to take care of your child or your elderly parent or whoever you're traveling with. Take care of yourself first. And I think of that as I think of all these opinions about Jesus. There's a value to each one of us doing a self-inventory, self-examination. Am I squared with the truth? Do my beliefs and my convictions square with this book? Or do my beliefs and convictions get influenced by the evening news? by Oprah or Phil or those other people on television. Not only do we need to examine ourselves, but it is imperative that we learn to explain the gospel clearly and correctly. It is imperative that people come to a faith in the true and real Jesus, not one that someone else has created that's sort of kind of close. When we share the gospel, we need to clearly and correctly identify who Jesus is and what He's done. People must Understand, our message must be clear that the eternal, self-sufficient, holy creator God who created the universe, created everything that we see, created me and you, right? This holy, righteous creator God invaded this planet in the person of Jesus Christ. God became a man. 100% God, 100% man. Do I understand that totally? No. (laughs) But that's what the Scriptures teach. Jesus, this God-man, lived on this planet for 33 years. He lived a perfect, holy, sinless life. A life that you and I could never Never, ever live, right? Never. And at the end of the first 30 years of his life, in the plan and the providence of God, Jesus went to a Roman cross voluntarily where he died. A horrible, painful, awful, awful, wicked death. He didn't go to that cross as a martyr. He didn't go to that cross as an example of what goodness looks like, what love looks like. He went to that cross where he died. Why? Well, because 
The eternal God, the creator of the universe, loves us. Loves you and he loves me. And the eternal creator God of the universe wants relationship with you and with me. And that should overwhelm us. We should be in awe of that. He wants relationship with you and with me. But there's something that hinders that relationship. What is it? It's not the coronavirus. There's another virus. (laughs) The sin virus. And it's our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion against God. The prophet Isaiah described it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And so there's that, that barrier to relationship. God loves us. God wants relationship with us. But it's our, our sin and our disobedience that becomes the barrier, the hindrance. And so Jesus went to the cross and died. Why? Well, He died in my place and He died in your place where we should have died for our sin. The Scripture says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in Him. It's the death of Jesus, not as a martyr and a sacrifice, not as a martyr and an example, but as a sacrifice in my place and in your place. That God is then able to offer and extend forgiveness to us, eternal life. So what's God asked me to do in the midst of all this? Repent of my sin and put my faith and my trust in Jesus' sacrifice in my behalf. I turn away from my sin, my disobedience, and I put my faith and my trust in Jesus. Repentance is an about face. I'm going this way, and now I'm going this way. Repent and put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Lots of people about that gospel message. Lots of people are unclear about that gospel message. Sadly, I fear many people who sit in pews and chairs in Sunday morning church services are very confused, still today, about who Jesus is and what He did. Opinions matter. That's opinion about what He wants for dinner clearly doesn't matter. We established that. But what you believe about Jesus, who He is, and what He's done, matters. It matters eternally. It is critical, critical opinion. We need to take inventory. Have I really come to the place in my life where I have... Turn from sin, put my faith and trust in Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. The eternal God-man. God become a man. Righteous, holy, perfect sacrifice. Opinions matter. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is where? In His Son. 
And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son of God has what? Life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know. K-N-O-W. That you may know that you have eternal life. That's God's plan, God's hope for you and for me. Opinions matter. Opinions matter. And so, Lord, as we've looked at all these opinions, the opinions of the many, the opinions of Jesus, we've tried even to delve a little bit into our own opinions about Jesus. I pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak into each of our hearts, each of our lives, that you would poke and prod by your Spirit. That for each one of us here present this morning, each one who's watching on YouTube, that for each one of us, there would be a, a time, a moment of self-examination. How am I doing in understanding the truth? How am I doing in embracing the truth of the Scriptures? Are my opinions based on the Word of God more than on the culture in which I live? Lord, help us to take inventory. And then, Lord, give us clarity as we have opportunity to speak to others about you, that we might clearly, correctly communicate to people the great truth of the gospel, the good news that people need to hear. So, Lord, thank you for speaking into each of our hearts, each of our lives this morning. We give you thanks together in the name of our soon-coming King, the Lord Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. We'd like to stand for the last song as we sing just exactly what Pastor said. We're going to sing that out in the song.
Are you grateful this morning for the hope that you have in Jesus? There's not much hope to be found elsewhere, but there's lots of hope to be found in Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're going to share a very special time of luncheon. You are all invited, just as a reminder, right out here in the courtyard. And uh, we're going to have a great time of fellowship, and we're going to celebrate our graduates. So come along and be a part of that time. Let's celebrate together.